0: I love your pastor, he's a nice guy, Uh, TNT, Todd and Tanya. (laughs) Love this church too, always enjoy the worship here, and uh, love the freedom that you have in your worship, the sense of liberty. Those things are important, you don't find them in every church, you know, and uh, really a blessing to fellowship with you here. Let's pray together, and we'll open God's Word and, and ask the Lord to speak to our hearts. Father, may Your Word be clear this morning. May uh, Your Word speak to us and may that Word be unleashed in our spirits that it might root deep within us and, and bring change to our lives. Lord, I submit to the authority of Your Word and, and I submit to uh, Your Spirit and, and to Your conscience, that, that we would enter into, Lord, Your mind and, and receive of You and, and straight from Your throne. May that word, Lord, come alive within me and within your people this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to share with you a beginning in the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 29. So you can turn there and, and I want to begin to help you see a little bit about the Lord uh, and, and to understand how He works. You know, the God that we worship is an amazing God. And to know His ways, you must know Him, of course. And I want to teach you a little bit about who He is this morning and and, uh, what He has for you, what intentions He has. The Bible says in Jeremiah 29, For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. They are plans for good and not for disaster. You know, the first thing we must learn about God is that God has good plans for us, not plans of disaster. You know, our plans will bring us to disaster and bring us to failure and bring us to shame. But God's plans are always good plans for us. The thing I've discovered about God, though, is that His plans are so far beyond our plans that it's very difficult to comprehend His intentions. It's difficult to look past our own little lives and, and look past our own little dreams and, and our own little ambitions. And begin to see God's ambitions, because His ambitions are so far beyond ours. His point of view is so far above ours. Many times I've found that we, you know, wallow in small-mindedness and small thinking, and limited understanding and fear. I have a little grandson. I have seven grandchildren, by the way. Um, If you don't know about my grandchildren, I'll be happy to tell you about them. (laughs) if you're not interested, I don't care. (laughs) Amen, brother. But I have a little grandson. He's about uh, 10 years old now, Justice. He's nine. It's hard to keep up with seven. Uh, But Justice was with us a few years ago at Beverly's mother's 80th birthday. And so we had a birthday cake with, you know, 80 candles and, and all of her friends were there and And uh, he was there, you know, enjoying the cake and ice cream. But he got upset and he came to me. He was crying. He said, Papa, there's a lot of really old people here with scary faces. (laughs) And I thought a lot about children, you know, how children see us. You know, we, we just see the little th- urchins running around under our feet. We really don't think about what it's like to see things from their point of view. And for a little boy who's, you know, not accustomed to hanging around a lot of uh, older people, it can be a little frightening. Our grandchildren, I have learned that, uh, uh, you know, that I can be very, I can connect to them and be very affectionate with them if I will come down to their level. You know, Beverly, I tell Beverly this with all of our grandchildren, uh, until they're two years old, you can have them. I really don't want to have much to do with them. You know, especially when they're infants, when they're those little a month old and three months old and their head wobbles and I'm afraid of them. I don't want to hold them. I'm afraid I might do something wrong or drop them or, you know, do some feed them something they're not supposed to have. Like when I gave our two year old son licorice, um, I found out later that was a bad thing to do. When Beverly said, what did you give him? At that time, we had cloth diapers, and those stains never came out. <laughs> and I heard about it, you know, as long as he was in diapers. I think he was actually about one year old, wasn't he? Uh, yeah, it was really a bad thing that I did. But anyway, moving right along, uh, I told Beverly, you know, I'll let you have them until you're two, they're two years old. But once they're two and their imaginations begin to awaken I found that I can captivate those imaginations, and I can steal their hearts away from Beverly, and they begin to love Papa much more than they love Mimi. <laughs> yeah. So, but I have many secrets. You know, one is to always carry candy in your pocket. That's a good thing. But the other secret I've learned, the most important, is to come down to their level, and that's what's one of the most amazing things about God is God has this ability to, to come down from His amazing point of view and come down to our level and meet us on the level that we're on. God has this ability to see the big picture. I want to show you a little bit this morning to help you understand what it is like to see from God's point of view. Watch this video with me. He determines the number of the stars. He gives them all their names. Psalms 147, verse 4. God is amazing. Speed of light is 186,000 miles per second. That's really fast. I have a 2,000 Jeep. It has almost 100,000 miles on it. I've towed it for about 60,000 miles. That Jeep is 13 years old, and it still has not yet reached 186,000 miles of travel. But the speed of light travels that distance in one second. Gives you an idea of how fast that is. You would have to travel at the speed of light for 70 years to reach the extent or the edge of our first radio broadcast from this earth. You would have to travel at the speed of light for a hundred thousand years to get far enough away from earth to see the Milky Way galaxy. There are two hundred billion stars in the Milky Way galaxy, and that's one galaxy, the galaxy we live in. There are 125 billion galaxies, and in each of those galaxies, there are approximately 200 billion stars. How many of you are grasping these numbers? You getting at bit? You getting it? Do you understand it? If anyone here understands it, I would like for you to explain it to me after this service. (laughs) I mean, I can't get my mind around this. It is truly mind boggling. The known, what we call the known universe, that is what we know about, it would require you to travel from edge to edge 50 billion times years at the speed of light, excuse me, five billion years at the speed of light. That's really fast. That's really big. There is some kind of curtain behind what we call the known universe, a kind of curtain of light, and we really can't describe it because we don't know what it is. But scientists believe it might be the remnant of light left over from the Big Bang. What they call creation's event. What we call the moment when God said, let there be light. Now the problem is, is they really don't know what they're looking at. Because they're peering across billions of years, light years. Trying to understand this thing that they only see dimly. They say that perhaps some of the light has not yet had time to reach us. That's God's point of view. So when we talk about God seeing the big picture, the picture he sees is a really, really big picture. It is so far beyond our understanding that we cannot comprehend it. And here we have a problem in relating to this kind of a of a God. How can you relate to someone who is so big, so massive, so beyond our understanding? How can you have any kind of relationship with him? And how can you even begin to get an inkling of his plans? When God has plans, his plans are massive. And he says in his word, I have plans for you that are far beyond your plans. They're plans to give you a future and a hope. Plans for good and not disaster. God uses words of encouragement when he speaks of his plans. So I'm beginning to discover a few things about God. Number one, this I know about God is that God sees big. Say that with me. God sees big. That's number one. Now the second thing I've discovered about God is, uh, you can see a little bit of it in 2 Chronicles chapter 16 and verse 9. 2 Chronicles chapter 16 and verse 9. It says, the eyes of the Lord search the whole earth in order to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to Him. God searches through the earth. He is keenly interested in the activities of human beings. His eyes run throughout the earth looking for someone that He can show Himself strong to. So not only does God see big, but He also sees small. God sees the big picture, but He sees the little picture. God can look down from His place in heaven and focus on the tiniest, most minute, most obscure thing. The Bible even says that when a sparrow falls, He knows about it. The Bible says that He knows the very hairs on your head. In fact, He says that they're numbered. This is why I have uh, God is so ble- has so blessed my life. Because he doesn't have to worry about counting the hairs on my head. He has more time to engage himself in things that really matter. (laughs) Just joking. I know it's a cheap joke, you know, but at least it's at my own expense. But God is keenly focused on us. And so, number one, God sees big. But number two, God sees small. Say that with me. God God sees big. God sees small. Now, I want to show you a little something just to help illustrate that and help you understand about how God can focus on one person and how He can move heaven and earth to make His will come about or His plan come about in that person's life. Watch this with me. Most of you know that Beverly and I have a blind children's home in Jumla, Nepal. This home is located high in the Himalayan mountains. And to get into Jumla, you have to fly by a little plane. In fact, the road that goes in there is just a recently opened road and uh, quite a journey to make it. And there we have 30 blind children that we're caring for. Uh, My first time there uh, to stay with those children or to visit them was about four years ago. At that time, there were 15 children that we began to take under our wing and to feed and to clothe and, and to put in school. Now, those kids lived in very difficult conditions. They live at about 10,000 feet, and it's very cold there. They live in little mud, a little mud house made of stone, and they cook on an open fire. Uh, there's a woman there who cares for them, and when I visited them the first time, their living conditions were very bad. Uh, you got involved with us and helped us about three years ago, three and a half years ago, to purchase a piece of land. And since that time, Beverly and I have been working to build a home for those children. It wasn't easy to build up on that property. There's no road coming in there, there uh, no cement that you can purchase. We literally had to bring cement uh, five days up the valley by donkey to make the walls for that, room, for that building. We cut the stones out of the river and we brought those stones up there and began to stack them there by the thousands and dug the foundation. And through the course of the last three years, we've been building that home. About a month ago, the kids began to move into that home. They're now moved in and the home is fully completed. We're taking care of 30 kids. Now you had a big part in the beginning of that of that project. This is the home now completed. You know, it's important to understand that the beginnings are the most difficult times of anything we endeavor to do in God. And I've always been grateful to your pastor and to you because you had the courage and the faith uh, to believe in Beverly and I and invest in this vision in the very beginning when no one else was investing. Since that time, we've been able to put about $150,000 into this project and it's completely paid for, completely finished. Amen. I want to thank you for that. One of those kids was a kid named Dancing. The time I first met him, he was 19 years old. He's now uh, 21, going on 22. Dancing was actually a leader of the group, and he helped us has helped us to manage that project. Even though he's blind, he's very smart and he's very capable. Dancing has now finished school. He was a little bit late because he lost so many years because of his blindness, but he's finished school. And he's now employed by the same school, a government school, that he went to school in. He has his own little home. He cooks his own meals. He lives there uh, uh, under his own provision, gets a little salary from this government school. He walks to school every morning and teaches in his class. There was another young woman, uh, a young lady, at the time I met her, 17 years old. Her name is Pankali. And when I first met Pankali, she was in our church there that we had a, we had built or we had started, and uh, she came and sang a song in a high, beautiful falsetto, and she sang about how the gospel first came to her village, and I remember being moved by tears as someone translated the words of that song, speaking of the Lord and, and of the liberty she nows known now knows. About two months ago, dancing and Pankali were married in a ceremony in one of our churches our first blind children, to Mary. And they now live. There is such a, a beautiful success of how God has favored their lives and how He's led us to help them. But what I want you to see is how God made that come about. Because when I first went to that area, there, there were no Christians in that, in that entire valley, no believers. The gospel has never been preached there from the, from the beginning of human history. People have worshipped idols there for literally thousands of years. One of the few places left on earth where the gospel is not yet penetrated. This was about five years ago. And uh, when I went there and began to travel, we had a little church that we had begun that at that time was only about 30 people. And we were getting a lot of persecution from the villagers. Uh, I met and met a uh, uh, dancing there and we traveled together for four days, hiking up into those mountains and visiting villages where we hoped to start churches. He traveled, carried his own backpack blind with a staff that, you know, felt his way along trails that most of you would be afraid to walk on trails that were about uh, two feet wide and some of them with drop offs going down as far as much as a thousand feet. And here's this blind guy walking on that trail. And I walked behind him, you know, just, you know, ready to grab his pack if he slipped and fell. But he, he, he did it four days, slept together with him. And one night we were in the in the little Nepali home we slept in. We all slept in the same room, about six of us. We're sitting around the cooking fire and someone asked him, dancing, how did you lose your sight? And he said, when I was an infant, I had an infection in both of my eyes. My parents took me to a uh, shaman, uh, because there's no medical facilities there, no hospitals. And uh, he mixed herbs with hot oil and poured that into my eyes. And from that treatment, I lost my sight. And someone around that fire got angry. They said, well, that, that was only about 15 years ago. We need to find who that man was. He must still be here. We should bring him to the police. He should be accountable for what he did for you. I'll never forget what dancing did reached across the fire and he found the knee of that brother that was sitting there. we were all sitting in a circle cross legged and touched his knee and he said, brother, just let it go. And in that moment, I felt my heart connect to dancing because I saw forgiveness like I have never seen it before. I saw a man who's willing to forgive someone who had taken his sight. And I thought in that moment, I'm going to help this young man. Whatever it takes, whatever he needs, I am going to help him. And that began our relationship with Don And from our relationship with him, we fell in love with 15 blind children and began to care for them. And from those 15 kids, another 15 joined us and we now have 30. All because God helped me to see one boy in a little village that is not even named on a map. If God can look down from heaven and see a little blind boy in an unnamed village and bring a foreigner who's, who does nothing of that area, bring him to that place and have him meet together and sit around a little fire and touch his heart and move him to tears. Don't you think that God can look down from his place in heaven and see you and your little life here? Don't you think He can understand and know right where you are and what your needs are? Don't you think He's interested in you? If He can move heaven and earth for dancing, can He also also move heaven and earth for you? God sees big. God sees small. God may be beyond our imagination, but He also has a capability beyond our imagination to know every detail of our lives. And to be actively involved in those details. Say that with me. God sees big. God sees small. I want to show you another illustration of how God sees the small things. This is really important for you to understand. Watch this video with me. In 1995, I had the privilege of helping to write the Unreached People's Prayer Profiles at Bethany World Prayer Center. And some of you may have seen those. They're online. You can find them at joshuaproject.org. A number of organizations have them. But they're little four-page pamphlets on the 1720 unreached people groups in the world. And we took five years to write those profiles and encourage people to pray for indigenous peoples that had not yet heard the gospel. One of those people groups were people called the Taru. The Taru lived in northern India and southern Nepal. And at the time we wrote those profiles, there were no known Taru believers in the area where we now have churches. Ten years later, I found myself in Nepal, Gunj, Nepal. And I found myself sitting in a circle with about 20 young teenagers. And I began to teach them everything I knew about the about leadership and about the gospel and and about how to pastor a church. These young men, most of them had only been saved for a year or two. And one of them was a little 17 uh, year old boy by the name of Indodrev. Indodrev had just recently come to the Lord. And and I remember washing his feet and praying over him and and speaking over his life. Indudrev started a church with about 30 believers, most of them teenagers. And over the past uh, seven years, he has been pastoring that church. About four months ago, I was I visited Indudrev in his village, and we dedicated a building that he had just completed. This is Indodrev. That building cost about fifty thousand dollars, including the land. Beverly and I gave him twenty-five thousand. A friend of ours in Texas gave him 10,000. Our main congregation in Nepal of Nepali believers gave 5,000, and the Taru people themselves raised $5,000. They built a building that will seat 500. In the services now on every Sunday, they have 300 believers who gather. When Inderdrev began, he baptized by ones and twos. He now baptizes by the hundreds. IndraDrev oversees about 20 churches, and in those 20 churches, there are roughly a thousand, perhaps 1,200, Taru believers. When we wrote those unreached people's prayer profiles in 1995, IndraDrev was seven years old. God sees small. God knew at that time we wrote those prayer profiles, though I didn't know. He knew that someday I would sit in a circle and teach that young man. He knew that someday I would help that young man to build a congregation and to build a church. When uh, when I was praying for Inder there over that building, he began weeping. And I said, why are you weeping? He said, Pastor, before you came, I prayed and asked God to speak to me through you. And I said, whatever God, he tells me, I'm going to believe is the word of the Lord. I just got through telling him that he was going to pastor a thousand people in that church. And I was telling him what he needed to do to change his structure to accommodate a thousand believers. And he began weeping. In 1995, there were no known Taru believers in Indodrev's region. Now there's a church that seats 500. There's a congregation of 300. And there's a vision in the life of a young man to pastor a thousand. And he will pastor a thousand. And it will happen quickly. God sees big. God sees small. If God can take an interest in a little blind boy named Dancing, if God can move heaven and earth to help a young pastor, 17 years old, na- named uh, Inderdriv, Surely the Lord can move in your life. Amen? God sees big, God sees small. Number three, Psalms 102, verse 21. And so the Lord's fame will be celebrated in Zion, His praises in Jerusalem, when multitudes gather together and kingdoms come to worship the Lord. God is keenly interested in multitudes. He has the capacity within himself to embrace billions within his kingdom. God desires multitudes. There is a certain movement we see in the earth where God is raising up large congregations. And some people are a little bit uh, afraid of that. They're a little bit uncomfortable in large crowds. But you know, there'll come a time when you'll stand on the sea of glass and you will worship along with the multitudes from generations past and generations future, from every tribe and people and tongue. And trust me, there's going to be a pretty big crowd in that gathering. (laughs) God sees big. God sees small. God sees many. When we began our first church or started our first work seven years ago in Nepal, uh, we had a small work, about 20 churches and maybe about a thousand believers altogether. Last October, we held our fourth conference that we've held there. We now have hold them every other year. In that conference, we gathered the 160 churches that we have planted in the last seven years in Nepal. And in those 160 churches... We saw over 9,000 believers assemble together. 9,000 in seven years. Someone asked me, Brother Rick, how did you do that? And I'll have to be honest with you. I wish I could say that I heard from the Lord and that I strategized and that I I saw this vision. None of those things happened. I just happened to be there at the right time in the right place in God's sovereign plan. And I have to say, when we see those multitudes and we, Beverly and I cry like babies because we know it is only the Lord's grace that has allowed us to participate in that work. God is interested in multitudes. I want to show you some footage of that conference and, and just let the footage uh, speak for itself. In the middle of that video, you saw an elderly woman in her seventies, heavy jewelry in her ears, on her nose, and around her neck. That woman is a new believer, came to the Lord within the last three years. For her entire life, she has bowed to idols, Hindu idols. Her father, her grandfather, her great-grandfather, and generations back to the beginning have all worshipped idols. At the time you saw that woman, she was going through some motions, touching her chest and doing her arms like this. And in that moment, I was on the platform, and I was teaching her to memorize a scripture. Like most of our believers, she is illiterate. She can't read and write. And so I like to teach them scriptures and I like to give them motions that will help them to remember those scriptures. And in that moment I was teaching her, I can do all things through Christ Jesus who strengthens me. Oh! (laughs) We were all doing that together. And I've often thought, that surely the Lord, as he looked down from his amazing universe, and he looked into that crowd of 9,000 people, and he looked down into that 70-year-old woman whose ancestors had worshipped idols, surely he must have found great pleasure as she memorized his word. And as she expressed her faith, and as she felt His joy come upon her. Did you see her smiling? God sees big. God sees small. God sees many. Finally, God sees all. The Bible says in Psalms 33, verse 13... The Lord looks down from heaven and sees the whole human race. From his throne, he observes all who live on the earth. He made their hearts. So he understands everything they do. You know, sometimes I do things that I don't understand myself. I wonder, why did I do that? Why did I say that? What was I thinking? What was wrong with me? Sometimes I know that we look back on our lives and and we feel shame for the things we have done and for the mistakes we've made. Sometimes we think that those things we've done and the shame we feel have separated us from God. Sometimes we try to hide those things from Him like Adam and Eve did when their sins were exposed. And sometimes we separate ourselves from Him. The thing about God is that even though He seems to be far away, He's very near to us. And even though you think you might hide things from Him by your shame, you cannot hide from Him. He knows everything about you. He already knows. He knows what you did on the way to church this morning. He knows what you thought as you sat in this pew. He knows what you will do even this afternoon before you know it yourself. God is an amazing, amazing person. He sees big. He sees small. He sees many. He sees all. But though He sees all, He does not condemn all. In fact, He does not condemn any who come to Him. There was a woman caught in adultery, and when she came to Christ and and, uh, her sins were exposed and she was ashamed before him, Jesus asked her, where are your accusers? And she said, there are none, Lord. And he said, neither do I condemn you. Go your way and sin no more. The Bible says in John 10 that the gatekeeper calls or opens a gate for him, and the sheep hear his voice and come to him. He calls his own sheep by name, and he leads them out. He knows the names of every person that has ever lived or ever will live. And he knows your name and he knows about you. Say that with me. God sees big. God sees small. God sees many. God sees all. Let's bow our heads together. I want to ask you to give me about three or four minutes, just with you and, and your heart and the Lord. Maybe as I've been sharing this morning, you've been touched and and uh, you've thought about your own life and, and God peering down from His place in heaven and peering into your soul. And maybe as you sit under the scrutiny of His gaze, maybe there's things that you have attempted to hide from Him. Maybe there's shame in your life that has brought you to a place of, of running from His presence. Maybe you find it difficult to relate to such a, an amazing God. If you're here this morning, you say, Pastor Rick, this last uh, point that you talked about has touched my heart. And I've realized there are things that God sees in me that I'm ashamed of and that I know I have not gotten right with him. I, I haven't repented of those things. I don't really know him in the way that I should. This morning, I want to get it right. That I, I want to confess that sin that's in my heart and, and I want to begin to follow him without shame. And I want to allow him to see and discover everything about me and hide nothing from him. Maybe you say, Pastor Rick, I really don't know the Lord in the way you're describing. I, I don't feel real comfortable with him when it gets quiet and I close my eyes and I think about me and him. Or I think about myself standing before his throne. I feel very nervous about that and because I know it's not right. If that's you this morning, you say, Pastor Rick, pray for me. I want to get things right with the God who already knows anyway. Lift your hand so that I can pray for you. You want to get right with the Lord. Lift it up high. Don't be ashamed. You might be the only person in this room that raised your hand. Anyone else? Thank you. Now, there are about three hands that went up. And I'm going to ask you to do something courageous. You might be the only person that comes forward. Not everyone who raises their hands has the courage to come. But you say, Pastor Rick, I am so determined to get right with God today, to g- begin my journey with Him, that I'm willing to come forward and let you pray for me. I want you to get up out of your seat right now and come forward. Don't hold back. Don't be ashamed. This is your time of faith. Get it right this morning. Man, I'm glad you came, brother. you came in. I don't know anything about you guys, but you're courageous and you're serious. You're ready to get delivered, aren't you? Get your life changed. What's your name? Dwayne, Jason. Deborah. John. Church, let's stand together and honor these right now. to ask you to pray with me as I pray for them I'm going to lead you in a prayer you know the prayer doesn't mean nothing if it's just my words it's got to come out of your heart it's got to mean something to you but I want you to close your eyes and begin this prayer this prayer is your beginning it's not the end just the beginning there's people here in this church that can help you and they want to help you if you'll let them all right I don't know what you brought here doesn't matter because I don't see everything He does. Let's pray. Church, pray with me. Dear Jesus, I'm so sorry that I have sinned and I'm ashamed. I bring my sin to you, which you already know I've done, and I confess it today. I ask that you forgive me, that you cleanse me of my sin that you come and live in my heart. Jesus, I give myself to you. I will serve you. I will learn about you. I will honor you. Cleanse me from my shame. Forgive me of my sins and rule in my life. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Let's thank God for that, people. Thank God. Pastor Todd's going to help give you some instruction here and uh, they'll do what they can to help you. But you've got to let them help you. All right? You can't do this by yourself. You understand, don't you? You've got to get some help. Don't be proud. Be humble. Get the help you need. Amen. God bless you. Thank you. Thank you, church. Thank you, pastor. Thank you.